Louisiana Eats is brought to you with support from Louisiana Fish Fry, a staple of Louisiana kitchens for nearly 40 years. Maker of batters, coatings, boils, tartar sauce, cocktail sauce, and more. Dig into homemade Louisiana flavor. From our studios in the Southern Food and Beverage Museum in New Orleans, this is Louisiana Eats. I'm Poppy Tooker. Over the last few years, the dining category of breakfast and brunch have simply exploded across the nation. Here in New Orleans, the city where in the mid-1800s Madame Begay literally invented the meal we know today as brunch, the Ruby Slipper Cafe has prospered and multiplied in a way that Jennifer Weisept and her husband Eric could never have anticipated when they opened their very first mid-city location in 2008. Jennifer's here to tell us all about what's become one of New Orleans' hottest exports. The poached egg is a prerequisite of virtually every brunch menu, and no one knows poached eggs better than Brennan chef Ryan Hacker. We stop in to see just how they accomplish the perfect poached egg in quantities that will make your head spin. Finally, we're pulling out all the stops for a New Orleans tradition that's roaring back in today's post-pandemic world the Drag Queen Brunch. We'll introduce you to some of the rollicking queens that make Poppy's pop-up drag brunches at Tujac's restaurant, one of the hottest tickets in town. And guess what? They're back. So grab your bottomless mimosa and get ready for an unforgettable Louisiana Eats. Former engineers Jennifer Weisept and her husband Eric became first-time restaurateurs in 2008 when they opened the Ruby Slipper Cafe in their New Orleans neighborhood of Mid-City. With its emphasis on breakfast, brunch, and eye-opening cocktails, the restaurant became an instant hit, and Jennifer and Eric soon began opening eateries across town. Over the next 13 years, they've grown into a sprawling empire, today operating 18 restaurants across five states. Jennifer joined Louisiana Eats in the studio twice over the course of this remarkably fast expansion. The first time was in 2016. Ruby Slipper had opened six spots as the dining category of brunch was exploding across the nation. I asked her then if she felt it was good fortune that found her on the front end of the bell curve. So it's interesting because we always, my husband and I, we're big breakfast people. We love breakfast. And so before we owned a restaurant, we would every single weekend go all over New Orleans and the surrounding areas just to eat breakfast. I grew up in New York. Maybe that's my, you know, kind of leftover love of New York diners that you know, breakfast at any time of day, day or night. So we felt like that was a thing that was missing in the Mid-City neighborhood. And so if you remember back to 
pre-Katrina, Betsy's is the only breakfast restaurant in the whole of Mid-City. And Mid-City is quite a large area. So we did... I feel like I'd like to say, you know, oh, we knew it was going to be that. But we we really did get lucky that the thing that we liked and we thought the neighborhood needed, you know, we were right. And the fact that, like, it's just as a restaurant day part taken off so much. So what provoked you to open this business? So the Ruby Slipper came about as a bit of a post-Katrina story. Uh, we lived in the Mid-City neighborhood, which is, you know, very central in New Orleans, and our neighborhood was devastated by um, floodwaters when the levee broke. And as part of our contributions to helping the neighborhood recover, we had an opportunity to open a business in the location that became the Ruby Slipper Cafe. And uh, strangely enough, my husband Eric and I are both engineers by education and background and career. And so it was quite a different uh, jump off into something else <laughs> to, to go into the restaurant business. But we felt that our neighborhood um, needed something like a breakfast restaurant or a coffee shop that could become a hub and amenity that would cause people to choose our area of Mid-City, maybe over some other areas as they were coming home or rebuilding or choosing to live in a different neighborhood when they um, may have lost their home somewhere else. I've always wanted to know, why did you name the restaurant the Ruby (laughs) Slipper Cafe? That is the number one question that I get asked. So where I got the idea for the Ruby Slipper was actually listening to the radio and one of the DJs on WWOZ was talking about, this is the summer of 2006, she was talking about her daughter who had just returned from her one-year hurricane evacuation in Houston. And the night before, the teenage daughter and her friends had gotten together and were talking about where they had been for the school year, what they learned, you know, what did they like, what they did not like about that place. And her daughter said to the girlfriends that... They were in Houston, and she said, what I learned is that I grew up in Oz, and every place else is just Kansas. (laughs) And I thought that was just the most beautiful, simple way to really describe New Orleans, because it is a colorful, quirky place full of interesting characters. And at that moment, all of us just so desperately wanted to go home. But nobody wanted to go to Kansas, where it's black and white and boring. (laughs) We all wanted to go to Oz, right? So that, to me, just really embodied the idea of why we were stepping out of our comfort zone and trying to build this restaurant. Well, anybody who has ever driven around the corner where the original Ruby Slipper Cafe is knows how well that restaurant was received because when you're open, there's always a line out the door, which is quite an achievement. Yes, there's always a line, which is a blessing and a curse, of course. Um, So once we opened our original location in Mid-City in May of 2008, within about two or three months, we pretty consistently had, you know, 45 to 60 minute waits for particularly on weekends. And so the you know, the the worst review we'd always get was the line's too long, the line's too long. So, you know, the only solution to that was to open a second one. And then when the lines got too long at the second one, which was again about two or three months, we opened the third one, which is in the Marigny, and then the fourth one, which is on Canal Street. <laughs> <laughs> and then we decided to take it 
outside the New Orleans market and see, you know, was this just a fluke and really this Katrina story or had we gotten onto something? So we opened in Pensacola, Florida, July of 2015. And then we opened in Orange Beach, Alabama in June of 2016. Three years after our initial conversation, Jennifer Weisept was back in our studio in 2019. By then, her restaurant group had expanded again with locations in Alabama and Tennessee. I asked Jennifer what changes, if any, a regular diner in New Orleans might find if they picked up a menu at a Ruby Slipper outside of Louisiana. Well, it's interesting because we we went down this path when we first opened in Pensacola, which was our first location outside of New Orleans. And we thought going into that that there were some menu adjustments we were going to have to make to be successful in that market. After all, you know, not everybody wants to have brunch all day. They're business people. They're used to eating lunch or, you know, people don't drink mimosas at 7 in the morning in other places. (laughs) Well, what we found was that, in fact, people will eat brunch all day and that was what they wanted. Um, So we had shifted in that case. We had shifted the menu a little more to the lunch focus And we had even added, as an example, we had added a grouper sandwich because we felt like that's kind of the iconic thing that everybody has. And what we learned was nobody really wanted that. You know, they would go somewhere else for that. They wanted to come to Ruby Slipper to experience the food that they had had in New Orleans or what they had heard about, you know, these Benedicts and French toasts and pancakes and those sort of things. So we actually kind of went back to the menu that we had here in the New Orleans market. And so now, boosted by our confidence in that experiment, as we've gone into other markets, we haven't made those adjustments. Instead, where we focused that, you know, kind of the creativity and the culinary influence of those new markets is in how we consider and build our seasonal specials. So, for example, when we launched in Franklin, Tennessee, we did a development project with our culinary team, and we launched three Tennessee-inspired specials. But, of course, we always want to put our own twist on them. So we did, like, a hot catfish Benedict. So, of course, everybody knows about Nashville hot chicken and loves Nashville hot chicken. We didn't want to do quite that. We thought hot catfish is a little more of that Louisiana influence or the southern Gulf influence. And um, it was a huge hit. Are there any ingredients that are so specially sourced that they're constant at all the restaurants? Yes. Maybe this is back to our engineering roots where, you know, when you find the right raw product, you stay with it. Of course, we use Leidenheimer French bread, and we use that in all our markets. We have a uh, a Tasso product out of the Lafayette area that, you know, we've tried a few other brands, but they just don't give us the same Tasso cream. And so we're, you know, we're kind of married to that product. We did a development and we do a um, Steen's cane syrup butter where we take Steen's, we reduce it down to molasses, we compound it with butter, add a little salt. And uh, we serve that with every biscuit that people order, whatever the dish is. It's so and delicious. It's so deli- we call it crack butter. It it's is. really delicious. And it's interesting because so few people outside of Louisiana know anything about cane syrup. Well, congratulations. I'm so proud to have had this whole phenomena come out of New Orleans. So thanks for the incredible work that you've been doing. And thanks for coming to see us again. Thank you. We love the opportunity to be here. I appreciate it, Poppy. 
Jennifer Weisseft, founder and CEO of the Ruby Slipper Restaurant Group, speaking with us in 2016 and again in 2019. up next, we visit Tujac's for an authentic taste of a rollicking drag brunch. But first, how did brunch originate in the first place? And how does it tie into the history of drag? Stay tuned, and we'll answer that question when we come right back. Poppy Tooker, and you're listening to Louisiana Eats, edible content for Louisiana food lovers. Louisiana Eats is brought to you with major support from Camellia Brand, Beans Done Right, a New Orleans tradition since 1923. From Rouse's Markets, synonymous with seafood straight from Louisiana's waterways, Rouse's Markets tastes like home. And from Crystal Hot Sauce, made with three simple ingredients, aged red cayenne peppers, distilled white vinegar, and salt. Nothing artificial. Crystal Hot Sauce, how New Orleans does flavor. Here's this week's culinary quiz question. Brought to you with support from Popeye's Louisiana Kitchen. Where did brunch originate in the first place? And how does it tie into the history of drag? Both stories follow a path to the mainstream shaped by class and gender, each with their own illicit beginnings. While there are many different theories on where brunch originated, historians see an inextricable link between breakfast and the drinking culture. Brunch popularized daytime drinking and the practice of mixing alcohol with juices, spawning such cocktails as the Bloody Mary and the Mimosa. This new wave of approachable, often citrusy cocktails helped remove the stigma of day drinking for women and the middle class. By the 1970s and 80s, brunch moved from the world of elite restaurants and hotels to find a home in more casual eateries, becoming what it looks like today. While there's no absolute definition of drag, the art of exaggerated cross-dressing for performance has its origins in vaudeville. It was through vaudeville that the first world-famous female impersonator came to exist, a man named Julian L. Tinge. Incidentally, L. Tinge was a frequent diner at Tujac's restaurant, where Madame Begay invented what was essentially the city's first brunch in pre-Civil War New Orleans. She called it the Butcher's Breakfast in a nod to the butcher's stalls of the French market, located across the street from her famous eatery. During the era of Prohibition, drag performances flourished in underground clubs and speakeasies. 
As homosexuality became more criminalized in America, drag became increasingly relegated to gay bars and underground spaces. In the 1950s and 60s, it found conventional acceptance in nightclubs like Club My Oh My in New Orleans, where a mostly heterosexual audience would come for dinner and a show. To avoid being arrested for female impersonation, which was illegal at the time, drag performers would add a mister in front of their names. And while Mardi Gras crews held pageant-style drag events at their carnival balls in the 1960s, they often had to remain hidden to avoid being busted by the police. By the 1970s, public opinion began to change. A restaurant named Lucky Chang's opened across from Antoine's in the mid-90s, complete with sassy drag waitresses and drag performances. Today, both drag and brunch have entered into the mainstream, becoming a part of everyday life. I can't think of a better pairing of traditions. I'm Poppy Tooker, and drag brunch makes for some real Louisiana eats. In 2015, I started a series of pop-up drag brunches benefiting Crescent Care, a New Orleans health clinic that originated as the No-AIDS Task Force in the 1980s. As I've hosted these fundraisers over the years, I've gotten to know some extraordinary drag queens, many of whom I had the pleasure of profiling in my book, Drag Queen Brunch, published in 2019. Just before the book's launch, I was at a Sunday morning pop-up at Tujac's restaurant, where I spoke with four drag beauties as they prepared for that morning's show. I asked them all to tell us a bit about themselves and their fabulous profession. Good morning. Here we are at Tujac's at one of Poppy's pop-up drag brunches. Now, Debbie with a D... You're the mistress of ceremonies this morning. Tell me what it takes to put together a drag brunch. Well, first of all, I'm not the mistress. You're the mistress of the drag brunches. I just get to impart the drag upon the audience once they get here. So it takes about, oh gosh, four or five hours to get ready in the morning to make sure all the sound equipment is up and running, to make sure the makeup is on and set. You have to shave and shower, deodorant, all that stuff um, so that you can put on a good show for everyone that comes out. Drag brunches, on average, start at about 11 a.m. What time did this beauty get started this morning? This morning started at 5 a.m. Mm, yeah. After a full night last night, too. Yeah. But that's the gig. That's the job. You're a drag queen. You're up late. You're out late. You're up early. And also then this afternoon, I'm going to pass right out at 2 o'clock. Done. Out. In bed. <laughs> now, Princess Stephanie... You are the grand dame of drag in New Orleans. How long have you been at this? As you can see in the new Drag Queen Brunch cookbook, I was on the Titanic on the staircase when they took that photo. It was so lovely. Misty, please introduce yourself and explain why you have chosen the name you have. 
My name is Misty Bonet, and the name basically comes from Pokemon. You know, there is something sort of anime about you. Well, thank you. That's the aesthetic that I try to go for. Oh, Laveau, are you busy? Or could you? You're so beautiful. My name is Laveau Contrier, and um, I chose Laveau because I wanted a strong, magical name. And I had a dream, and I heard someone refer to me as Laveau in the dream. And I was like, I woke up and I was like, well, that's it. Then Contrier, because au contraire, and it gives you sort of the play on words. Now, why do you do drag in the first place? Um, it's my favorite form of creative expression. I feel like I can use all of my skills and talents in the creating of the costume, to the styling of the hair, to makeup, and then like performance, which is my favorite part, which is basically sharing my story and joy with the audience. All of you here do drag and drag brunches. What is the difference? Drag brunches usually people that know what they're coming to and know what they're expecting in a regular night show. It's like, I'm going to stop by, I'm going to see what's happening, but I'm not going to stay for the whole thing. So drag brunch is more connecting, like, let me talk to you afterwards, get to know you. Like, I like, I like this. So I think the the difference is, like Misty said, people coming to a drag brunch kind of know that they're coming and they're going to bring dollars if it's for charity, especially like like yours are. You kind of expect that relationship with the audience at the bar. It's kind of like for our LGBT family. It's like a, a ball or you can show up in your outfit, show your new look off, do your new number and kind of hang out. Drag brunch is a little bit different because, like they said, people know what they're getting into and it's very exciting, but it's always more upbeat and up-tempo than maybe a midnight drag show. And food, everyone loves food. <laughs> like, it makes people happy, so everyone's in a good mood. Um, you get a breakfast and a show, and it's just a fun, fun environment. It is very difficult sometimes to walk by the tables and not take the lovely food off their plates and put it in your own mouth. But I concentrate on it being for charity, so I take their money and I give it to the needy. Where in the world do you ladies shop? Uh, (laughs) Amazon.com. No, um, there are plenty of shops in New Orleans where you can get like some discount drag. Um, Hit me up if you need some tips. But um, anywhere where they sell size 14 shoes. (laughs) (laughs) Uh, Amazon, Wish, um, and then just local shops around the corner that do costuming, because, you know, we do costuming here in New Orleans. Now, you, my darling Princess Stephanie, you must have quite a wardrobe. About 2,000 square feet. (laughs) And I recently removed 120 shoes and gave them pair of shoes and gave those to Bridge House so that they could sell. And I still have another 400 that need to be removed to someplace else. And being I'm a little plus size on the other side of a 14, I go where all the plus sizes are sold. And when I find beautiful things, I tell every one of my plus size beauties. And the jewelry. Now, Princess Stephanie, you are known for wearing the real thing. Well, if you're going to be real, you might as well have something that's nice and real. And I tell all of the girls, you should always have a precious pair of earrings and a necklace that does cost more than a week 
of your pay or drag pay because when you go to events, people like to see that you have something of worth owned because you're spending your money on luxury instead of a car payment or to have your garbage picked up. (laughs) Now, I know that people would love to know about the dichotomy of drag life and real life that sometimes intersects. For instance, um, when you're not Debbie with a D, who are you and what do you do? (laughs) Out of drag, my name is Joey. I actually work at Crescent Care which is a locally um, funded, uh, federally qualified health center uh, that does uh, a lot of health care for the LGBTQ community here in New Orleans, but also for everyone. Um, we do a lot of like HIV screenings, uh, hepatitis C, syphilis, all that kind of stuff, and I manage those programs. Princess Stephanie, tell me about your life when you're not performing in drag. We can find you in drag anyway. That's correct, Poppy. I bartend uh, over 40 to 60 hours a week, and according to Stoli Vodka, I am one of the six uh, full-time professional bartending drag queens in America, which sounds kind of bizarre, but most of the other girls bartend on a Saturday or for Halloween or for Mardi Gras, if they have Mardi Gras in the rest of the world. So I find that entertaining and fun. and. Pretty much people want to come and be served by Princess Stephanie because she's funny and witty and will give you some advice about your life, if possible. Misty, when you're not in drag, what are you up to? I work at Justine's on Charters. Oh, so we can drop by and have a little visit with you there. (laughs) Yeah, I'll bring you your food. (laughs) I don't say much, but you'll get a glimpse. Laveau, do you have another life outside of drag? Um, drag is my main life these days, but I also teach with a nonprofit in New Orleans called KidSmart. It's uh, where teaching artists go into the classroom and collaborate with the teachers to do arts integrated lessons. So I get to be a music teacher by day and a drag queen by night. It's really fun. <laughs> and you also are one of the great New Orleans Public Library drag queen storytellers aren't you (laughs) yes i actually did one yesterday um and it's just so much fun because the parents are super supportive and the kids absolutely love it because drag is kind of like the highest expression of like playing dress up kids respond super well to it they get really invested in the story that you're telling and you can just see it on their faces that they think you're superheroes. Um, But that's another thing that makes Drag Brunch so much fun is that kids are invited because it's during the daytime and it's not in a dark bar. Um, So um, we usually get a crowd that's more family friendly and um, cater our drag to support that in a way. You were a teacher before you were a drag artist, huh? Yes, and I think it kind of helps because you kind of know how to command a crowd. If you can handle a room full of five-year-olds, you can probably handle a a room full of adults that are slightly intoxicated. So it kind of translates. And if I ever need to get a crowd's attention, I have a ton of attention grabbers. (laughs) That was Debbie with a D, Princess Stephanie, Misty Bonet, and Laveau Contraire, speaking with me in 2019. The following Sunday morning, we held another pop-up drag brunch at Toop South, a restaurant that was located in the Southern Food and Beverage Museum before closing last January. 
Diners enjoyed brunch, bottomless mimosas, and drag performances, all in the name of charity. The event gave me the chance to speak with a young drag queen from New Orleans about her drag persona and to hear the story of her unofficial drag debut. Hello, this is Coochie Leachie, a local New Orleans drag entertainer. Coochie, I just love you and I am so glad that you are in the Drag Queen Brunch Book. Tell me about the different vibe. Tell me about the different experience when you're a drag entertainer. Whew. It's very, very hard on the body, I'm not going to lie. But I mean, you know, when you're working 18 hours in heels, then, you know, it just kind of happens. But the thrill of being able to just strut out there, do your stuff, feel pretty, look pretty, and, you know, be able to entertain and, and you know, enjoy the company of others is kind of, you know, what keeps me going. What inspires your drag? Tell us a little bit about your look and why. So I listen to a lot of K-pop, um, Korean pop music. Their culture and their music industry is a lot different than, you know, say the American industry. It is very, very closely tight-knit. They do a lot of choreography. The more I do drag, the more I kind of realize that, like, Coochie is kind of her own K-pop idol. And so that's the kind of that's the kind of vibe that I like to serve in. It, it is a different sound, a different look. I just love what you do. Now, I would love it if you would tell us how you began doing drag, because that is such a special New Orleans story. <laughs> so, um, like I said, I am a New Orleans local. I went to Isidore Newman for middle and high school. And senior year, it was in 2009, um, October 2009, for Halloween, I had just started getting into Lady Gaga. I don't know if you've ever heard of her. <laughs> um, this was um, during the fame era. She had this beautiful white dress with like crystals all over it. And I, I saw that dress and I was like, you know what? It's my last year. I might as well go out with a bang and I really want to try wearing this dress. And so, um, you know, I had my mom and my grandma help me make it. I made the crystals out of like paper origami and it was a riot. It was a hoot walking into the school and seeing everybody be like, who is this? Oh, my gosh. And so that was my first unofficial um, first debut in drag. But my drag mom, Lavo Contra, who's also with us today, she gave me my first show a year ago in March. I co-hosted a drag race viewing party with her and been downhill ever since <laughs> or uphill darling it's just been fabulous one of the interesting things about you is that you went on to Loyola and you actually have a very serious music education yeah Loyola is great for music uh, I study vocal performance with a music industry minor, so I have a classical training background. I sing with the New Orleans Opera Chorus still. Like I said, I listen to a lot of pop music, and that's kind of more what I want to do overall. So I love creating and writing my own pop music. I just released my first full-length album last month, so it's just very busy, a lot of entertaining, a lot of dancing, a lot of singing, a lot of performing in general. Well, Coochie, in your musical entertaining life, you are sort of binary there, too. Would you explain that? Yes. So I am um, male bodied. I am, um, you know, assigned male at birth. I kind of identify as genderqueer normally. But I mean, if you're going to call me a guy, I'm not going to be too mad about it. If you're going to call me a girl, feel free to. Um, but with my music, so my stage name for my music stuff is Sora. And I don't know, it's just, I think just because like, that's definitely kind of what I grew up with, even starting from as a kid, like just being in this particular experience and lifestyle 
Whereas like Coochie is a lot more fresh. She's only a year old. <laughs> and so um, with my music, I kind of play around with the, the binary and like blend it. But like it definitely is a lot more masculine, whereas Coochie is definitely a lot more feminine. And what's the name of your new CD? My new CD is called Paramount. Um, I just released a music video called Only for Tonight. Oh, I can't wait to see. Thank you so much, Coochie. It's always a pleasure having you part of the Drag Brunch Ensemble. The pleasure is eternally mine. I love you so much, Poppy. I'm gonna have some fun, even if I'm the only one. Just dancing on my own till the night is through. Had a bit too much wine. From 2019, that was Coochie Leechy, drag queen extraordinaire. And when the morning comes, we'll go home. A little bit hungover and alone. But I know if I see your face again, you and I will remember when. If you're ready for the Poppy's Pop-Up Drag Brunch experience, Join me in the Queens on Sunday, June 27th at Tujac's Restaurant for a three-course extravaganza. Call Tujac's at 504-525-8676 to learn more and make those reservations. Coming up next, we get a taste of a raucous Sunday brunch at Maryland's Place now celebrating 10 years in Shreveport. Louisiana Eats returns after the break. I'm Poppy Tooker, and you're listening to Louisiana Eats, edible content for Louisiana food lovers. Louisiana Eats is brought to you with support from Louisiana Fish Fry, Breadings, boils, new air fry mixes, and more classic Louisiana dishes available everywhere. Dig into homemade Louisiana flavor. And from the St. Tammany Parish Tourist Commission, stay, play, and get away on the Louisiana North Shore this spring. The North Shore is brimming with welcoming patios, boasting waterfront views, and decadent dishes. Indulge in fresh Louisiana seafood, locally grown produce, homemade sweet treats, and ice-cold brews. You're invited to feed your soul along the Tammany Taste Culinary Trail, just 40 miles north of New Orleans French Quarter, and a world away. Plan your St. Tammany visit at louisiananorthshore.com. For nearly a decade, Chris J. of Stuffed and Busted has kept us in the know on the food scene in North Louisiana. Some years back, Chris stopped by the studio to tell us about a popular casual dining restaurant in Shreveport called Maryland's Place, well known for its raucous Sunday brunch. His description was so enticing that the next time we were in Shreveport, we stopped in one morning to grab a beer and join in on the fun ourselves. This year marks 10 years of Maryland's place in Shreveport, and to celebrate, we take you back there now with the help of our old friend and roving reporter, Chris Jay. 
let's just assume it's Sunday morning, okay? okay? Let's get that out of the way first. It's Sunday morning in Shreveport. There is one place you have got to experience, and that is Maryland's Place. It's a walk-up, you know, a restaurant you can walk or bike to from several surrounding areas. And it used to be a gas station, but it's been converted into this really fun Cajun and Creole restaurant that's run by a chef named Boz Balcom. Boz cooked for 20 years aboard a Carnival Cruise Line ship, and he decided to move back to Shreveport, Bossier. He was, he was born there and learned to cook in New Orleans. And he cooked in New Orleans for about 10 years as well. But that Sunday brunch is absolutely insane. It's an unhinged kind of experience. If you're looking for a Sunday morning that's basically a continuation of Saturday night, mm-hmm. this is where to find it. Um, he calls it drink till you drown. But he's also <laughs> going to serve up some wonderful food while you're enjoying the $15 all-you-can-drink cocktails that begin at 10 a.m. Yeah, Stephen Peterson and uh, here at Maryland's, Maryland's Eatery, um, one of Highland's prime cafes. It's probably... Uh, the top place people like to meet and socialize. Well, I've been here two years and I found out about Maryland's within the first summer. And once I realized just how, how affordable and nice the place was and that you could bike and walk, no problem. I mean, this is a no-brainer for me. So what are those cocktails he's serving? Probably Bloody Marys, mimosas, screwdrivers. Yes. It's all you can drink, mimosas, madras, Bloody Marys. Yeah, some beer involved in there. Great raft, have to plug them. Uh, I'm Barry Butler, and I've been coming here for probably the past three, three and a half years. This is definitely the tribal, the tribal hangout, or as we like to call it, church. <laughs> well, just being honest there. Um, it's also a really progressive and fun place. For example, when uh, marriage equality was, you know, passed on a federal level, uh, his was the one restaurant that said, come here, we're throwing a huge party. And there must have been 700 people. They were spilling out into the parking lot. It was was complete insanity. And he was handing out free drinks. He was in a great, great mood that day. And, And it was really nice to see a local restaurant say, let's celebrate this right now. Come to Maryland's place. We're going to party. Well, tell me about the food that we're washing down with all these cocktails. It's sort of like a big southern comfort food twist on Cajun and Creole. So his crawfish etouffee, his jambalaya, these uh, biscuits and boudin specials that he runs, things like that may be sort of unrecognizable, for example, to people from southwestern Louisiana. They may kind of think, well, this is a little bit... Uh, modified take on some of our classics. And he absolutely wears that on his sleeve. He wants it to be bigger, richer, comfort food versions of Cajun and Creole classics. Yum. Okay. Well, as usual, I'm hungry. Let's go. Let's do it. Let's make sure it's a Sunday when we go and we can hit that bar too. If three, four, five of us are gathered in the name of Maryland's, it's a good, good thing. From our archives, that was our friend Chris Jay telling us about Maryland's place, now celebrating 10 years in Shreveport. Chris co-writes and produces Stuffed and Busted, a newsletter about food and drink in North Louisiana. To learn more, visit stuffedandbusted.com.
We end today's program with a look at one of breakfast's most fundamental foods, eggs. Next to coffee, bacon, and bubbly, no brunch is complete without them. Whether scrambled, hard-boiled, or sunny-side up, eggs are adaptable to a variety of different preparation styles. It's amazing everything that you can do with an egg. I think I learn something every time I cook them. That's Ryan Hacker, executive chef at Brennan's Restaurant, a place that knows a thing or two about eggs. For over a half century, the historic French Quarter restaurant has had an international reputation for its extravagant breakfast menu, where eggs take center stage. I don't think that um, I would be very good at my job if I didn't really love eggs. <laughs> I mean, I mean, I think that that is, that is inherent to doing this. Whether they love eggs or not, prospective chefs will find it hard to get a job at Brennan's or most high-end kitchens if they haven't mastered the art of egg cookery. As part of applying for a kitchen job, the first test is often simply making an omelet. That one technique speaks mouthfuls about a cook's potential. Well, I do that. Yeah, I mean, obviously, with, with how many eggs we do, it's absolutely, it doesn't matter where they're working, you're going to make me an omelet. The reason that you do the omelet is it shows mastery of controlling your heat. You know, can, can you control the heat? Can you season properly? And then also it shows kind of stylistically or developmentally where the cook is at, if that makes sense. You just say, make me an omelet. And they're in this unfamiliar place. And so do they search around? Do they find the proper pan to use? And do they find the proper heat source to use? And, you know, what do they put in the omelet? How is the omelet seasoned? My favorite ones are, are the ones where they just make a plain omelet. Because you can tell that somebody is incredibly confident in what they're doing. And they're letting their technique speak for themselves. Uh, whenever somebody is more on, on the green side, I guess you could say, then they, they try to embellish a lot. And so they'll put a, a ton of sausage or a ton of cheese or a ton of, you know, Lord knows what else in, into, uh, <laughs> into the omelet. And it's great, but it, it's not the intended purpose. And so you can really tell, it can really tell you a lot in a very short amount of time. While Brennan's offers a variety of egg dishes, their real specialty is poached eggs, something that's notoriously difficult to get just right. Overcook a poached egg, the whites are rubbery and the yolks are too firm. Undercook a poached egg and you're in danger of getting your diner sick. It's hard enough to do one poached egg, so how does Brennan's perfectly prepare up to 1,800 a day? Chef Ryan took us into Brennan's upstairs kitchen to show us how the process begins. All right, so the, uh, the egg poaching happens right here. We start poaching eggs at night, right around 7 p.m. And so we poach eggs just like I would at home. Um, we just do it on a much larger scale. Where at home, you would drop one or two eggs at a time and poach them and bring them out. We drop roughly 60 to 90 eggs at a time. There's 180 eggs in a case, and we'll take half of it and we'll crack it into a large mixing bowl. Uh, this is a 16-gallon tilt skillet. We start with 16 gallons of water. We use about 3% salt, and we use a gallon of vinegar for every 16. So 1 16th vinegar, right? And then we'll, we'll take it and we'll boil the water. We cut it off. We drop the entire bowl into the water. 
and we leave it alone. We don't touch it, we don't swirl it, we don't do anything. And we let it sit for about four and a half, five minutes. And then with that many eggs, we start pulling them out and we put them directly into ice water that's also salted. So that stops the cooking. And then we'll take them and we'll line them up on trays. And that is the end of the process for the evening. The next day, whenever we come in, we have a specialized oven that, that re-thermalizes things. It's kind of like a sous vide, but it's an oven instead of a water bath, right? And so it uses a mixture of convection and steam to heat it. Um, and we can hold it at a very precise temperature. An over easy egg is 135 degrees internally. And so we set the oven at 135, we put the eggs in, we let them sit there for about half an hour and they're ready to go. And then we just stage out eggs throughout the day. And they're all perfectly cooked, perfectly seasoned, and they stay just the way. How do you figure out how many eggs you need? So poached eggs are about 60% of everything we do for breakfast here. And so we do look at our reservations for the day. Uh, we've also gotten a pretty good feel for loss and, and, and how, how we're going to account for that. On average per day, we do six to 10 cases over a year that works out to be in just over half a million eggs, just for poached eggs. It wow. is obscene. It is, <laughs> it is crazy. Yeah. P7 is order fire. You got a Vinny and a Who sword on it. Can get one poached egg, please? Yes, please. Next, Ryan took us to Brennan's downstairs kitchen, the one you can glimpse from the window on Royal Street. There, a virtual battalion of chefs busily prepared plate after plate of egg dishes. Almost simultaneously, the moment a finished plate was set down, a waiter would place it on a tray and whisk it off into the adjacent dining room. So this is the a la carte kitchen, and this is the, the poached egg station. We're kind of unique in that because poached eggs are so much of our business, uh, we have an entire station that's wholly devoted to poached egg dishes. And so we have a griddle that we use for our Canadian bacon and our, our English muffins. We make roughly five gallons of hollandaise per day for these dishes. And the poached eggs themselves live in what's called a CVAP oven that we mentioned at, at 135 degrees. Y'all can pick up 96. It's a singled out hoosard. So your kids eat poached eggs, and yeah. you poach them at home. Yeah, yeah, <laughs> I, I, I can't get away from them. They're, uh, How many do you put in the pan at one time then? Are you breaking them into a bowl at home? Uh, yeah, I do the same thing. I break them into a bowl. The, the one thing that I do differently at home that I don't do here is at home, I'll put the vinegar in the bowl uh -huh. uh, just as kind of a landing surface. And so I know how much, I can eyeball it better. I mean, it's just, and so the eggs kind of sit in the vinegar and it all kind of goes in at the same time. And so, I mean, it, there, there's nothing that can, you know, make you feel more confident about your cooking as when you, you really ace an omelet, you know, at a tryout or, or what have you, and also humble you whenever I bust the yolk of my daughter's egg on a weekly basis, whenever I'm making it, to remind you that, like, it's a craft and you have to work at it every day. Cock-a-doodle-doo, bless my old hen. She lays eggs the best she can. Sometimes nine and sometimes ten. Cock-a-doodle-doo, bless my old hen. That was Ryan Hacker, executive chef at Brennan's Restaurant in the French Quarter. She tried to sleep but couldn't rest. The rooster got home baggy-eyed. And our old hen stood up and cried, I ain't gonna take a settin' down. I'm here.
they're hatching white and brown. You're out there scratching around the town. I ain't gonna take it. That's it for this week's edition of Louisiana Eats, edible content for Louisiana food lovers. Catch up on previous editions of Louisiana Eats on poppytooker.com, where we have 10 years of Louisiana Eats editions available for pod and webcasting, along with recipes and videos, too. And if you like our show, please rate it on your preferred podcast platform. And if you've been dying to experience a real drag brunch, Poppy's pop-up style, please join me and a bevy of beauties at Tujac's Restaurant on Sunday, June 27th. To make reservations, call the restaurant at 504-525-8676. Louisiana Eats is made possible with major support from Popeye's Louisiana Kitchen, Louisiana Fish Fry, Camellia Brand Beans, Crystal Hot Sauce, the St. Tammany Parish Tourist Commission, Rouse's Markets, and from D'Agostino Pasta. Handcrafted in Louisiana from semolina wheat and air-dried over rods and wooden cellars, D'Agostino Pasta is made just as it's been done in Sicily for centuries. Visit D'AgostinoPasta.com to learn more. Support for Louisiana Eats also comes from Gulf Coast Blenders. For more than 30 years, Gulf Coast Blenders has produced custom spice and dry blends for restaurant concepts across the country. Gulf Coast Blenders, dry ingredient blends with New Orleans roots. To learn more, visit gulfcoastblenders.com. Original theme music composed by David Pomerlow and performed by Johnny Sketch and the Dirty Notes. Big thanks to senior producer Joe Schreiner and producer and special projects manager Reggie Morris and to our business manager and social media maven Maddie Mulladew. Catch up with us anytime on Instagram, Twitter, and Facebook, too. Louisiana Eats is a production of Poppy Tooker Broadcasting. <laughs>